Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of my friends, who is a professional boxer, invited me to attend one of his bouts once. And uh, I really didn't know what to expect at this event, I'll be honest with you. I just knew it was going to be two dudes pummeling each other, beating each other up. Uh, but, but when I went, I noticed that what they do during these events is that before the main event, they have a bunch of other bouts. And the reason they do that is because they're trying to give people or boxers some in-ring experience to determine whether they want to make this their career or not. And I'll be honest, there was one individual, one fella, he was getting pummeled. I said, bro, you might as well just go back to accounting because this is not your sport at all. You shouldn't do it. I mean, he was getting hammered with jabs and right hooks and crosses. I mean, the man was barely staying on his feet. I was like, Jesus, can somebody just stop the fight here? Because this is awful. The man had a swollen eye. He had a bloody nose. And as he got hit each time, I was kind of cringing. And then I just said to myself, man, this man is in the fight of his life. And you know, as I thought about that this week, I realized that some of us are in that same fight. No, you're not in the ring with a world-class boxer. Thank God. No, no, you're not. But you are fighting for your life at this moment because you're getting jabbed with disappointment. You're getting uppercutted with all these letdowns. You're getting hooks of discouragement. And the truth is, is that some of us feel like joy is elusive in this season. And so because it's elusive, many of us are starting to look for joy in the wrong places. We're looking for joy in people. We say, God, if I can just get the perfect spouse or if I can get that perfect relationship or that group of friends, then I'll have joy. Some of us are looking for it in careers and in money. Because we think that if we get that, that promotion, if we get into that play, if we get that specific amount of friends, or we get that followers on Instagram, we'll be happy. Or if I get that new house that I've been looking for in the cul-de-sac, Jesus, it doesn't even have to be in the cul-de-sac. As long as it's a nice house and it's newly re remodeled, Jesus, I'd be happy with that, right? I, if I can get out of the apartment, some of us are saying, man, if I can just get to a specific day. If I can just graduate college or high school, if I can finally walk down the aisle, Jesus, I'll settle for the justice of peace at this point, but I'd be happy to do that. If I just had that baby that I've been wanting, or maybe when that joy, that day comes, then I'll be happy. But here's the truth, friends. It might bring, we might find happiness in a moment, especially with some of the beautiful blessings that come from God. But yet, even during the best time, joy always or will always seem to be elusive. And so because of that, some of us have developed two type of postures in life. We either become a, sin, a cynic or we become hedonistic, right? Let me talk to my cynics first. The, the cynic is pessimistic about everything. They just have a negative look on life. If I wasn't typecasting, I would call them a negative Nancy. Everything is always wrong. There's nothing that's going right. They can't even take a compliment. You'd be like, yo, you did a really good job. Yeah, but I could have did this better, that better. It's like, well, you know, I take my compliment back. I I'm sorry. Give, give me my compliment back. I, I, didn't, I didn't expect you to. They always think about the unchecked list, and they think about the problems and the flaws and the mistakes. And let me just say, if you are a cynical or pessimistic person, this is a dysfunctional way to live your life. Because God did not create you to think that everything was going wrong all the time. 
And on top of that, a lot of the problems that you have right now, even though they may seem insurmountable, they are nothing in comparison to other people's problems. We have, we complain about third, let me see it. I'll save that for another sermon. Here's another one. If you, maybe some of us are not cynical, but we're hedonistic. We're hedonistic. We're like, you know what? If life is going to be a roller coaster, and if it's going to be filled with all these ups and downs and these maneuvers, well, I might as well get my hands on as much pleasure as possible because I'm going to have as much fun to help soothe and deal with the problem of elusive joy. Maybe that's some of you in here today. Let me save you some time. <laughs> Let me save you some time. Uh, we're going to go through this passage today, and I want to help you see that I know that you're looking for joy, but I think you're looking for joy in the wrong places. And maybe God is inviting you to come to him to receive the lasting satisfaction and joy that you want instead of you going and pursuing these common pursuits that never seem to bring joy long term. Does that make sense? And so I want to talk to the hedon today, the hedonistic person today that is just absorbed and seeking pleasure. And before we get to that, let me let me just tell you about the book that we're in today. We're in a book called Ecclesiastes. I think a lot of books are written for Sunday morning in the scripture. You got the book of Philippians. Oh, it's just about joy. Oh, he's a little, oh, he's, he's just talking about joy during difficult times. You can hear Paul is locked up in a jail, in a prison, but he still has happiness because he feels like, you know what? God put me here. He's going to deliver me from it. That's a Sunday morning book. And then you have some of those great Psalms. Oh, the Lord is my shepherd. Oh, I shall not want you like, oh, that's so great. Then you got like Luke 15. It talks about leaving the 99, going after one. Like, that's just so beautiful. Well, the reason I love Ecclesiastes is because it's not a Sunday morning book. It's a Monday morning book. When you feel in pain and drudgery about Monday morning, read Ecclesiastes because he's complaining. He's talking about the tediousness of the nine to five work. He's talking about how he hates governmental corruption and how he's struggling with all of the, the, the drudgery of everyday living. I'm telling you, if you're ever frustrated, go home and read that book. And we find that it's written by this gentleman. His name is Solomon. Solomon is the third king of United Israel. And he, during his life, he was one of the wisest people that ever existed. But toward the end of his life, he fell off. He began worshiping other gods and he gave his life toward pleasure. So now he's writing this book, Ecclesiastes, in, his lat in the latter part of his life. So now his wisdom is still there and he's kind of reflecting on what he's done in life. It's kind of like a memoir, if you will. And what he does in this passage is he also talks about eight or so things that many of us pursue in order to find joy. Eight or so things that, that people do in order to find joy. Um, let me start with the first one. Here's the first one in chapter, I'm gonna be in Ecclesiastes chapter one. I'm gonna start with verse 16. This is what it said. And I said to myself, anytime you start talking to yourself, be just be careful, just be careful. We, do, we all do it, but just be careful. See, I have said to myself, see, I have amassed wisdom far beyond all those who are over me in Jerusalem. My mind has thoroughly grasped wisdom and knowledge. Somebody say knowledge. knowledge. And I applied my mind to know wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly. I have learned that this too is a pursuit of the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. As knowledge increases, grief increases. Do you hear that? Here's the first pursuit was education education. This man, you hear how he's saying, I, I just went and I, and I got a lot of knowledge. 
and I accumulated a lot of knowledge. So he's saying that the first thing that I did in order to get solace or joy from the futility of life is I went to the University of Jerusalem. I, as, as you'll see here, he probably went as a horticulturalist because he learned a bunch about how to plant and irrigate plants. Right, he, he just does that. He goes there, he gets degree after degree. He's smarter than many of his professors. He goes and gets a postdoctorate degree. He probably knows Greek and Hebrew, Aramaic, all of these ancient languages. And Solomon believes that if he gets a good education, that will put him on the road to happiness. And the truth is, is that many of us are just like Solomon. We think if we work hard enough and we get enough education, that perhaps that's going to make us happier. If we, get, if we study hard and we become the best in the field, then it's going to make me happy. But I want to let you know, I, I'm, I'm all for education. Amen. Go ahead and get that degree. Go ahead and get that certification. Well, you got to balance it. You got to decide, is, is the debt worth it going to help me get to where I want to go in my professional career? You got to ask that question. But, but here's the thing with education. Sometimes we become so excessively focused on educational education and intellectual pursuits, and we do that as a means to avoid the difficulties of life. Y'all going to amen me back today? That's what happens. We, we use it as a means of being disconnected or distracted from the pains of life. Let me just tell you, education is great, but it cannot solve all the problems in your life. Like, you, like it, it can bring you some joy, a, a semblance of joy until you get that first Sally Mae bill. You're like, was this education even worth it? I should have never pursued this, uh, this degree in psychology. I don't want to be a psychologist. But here's what I want you to know, friends, is that you can have all the degrees on the wall, but that will not help you deal with the brokenness in your heart. And so it has its limitations, and I think the more that Solomon studied and the more knowledge he accumulated, it brought him sorrow because he realized that there is so much that he does not know. And so he went through this problem. So here's, here's the next thing he went through. Look what he says. Verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. He said, I said to myself, go ahead, and I will test you with pleasure. Now, when he's saying pleasure, he's give, it's like a precursor to all of the things that he's going to do next. He said, to, and, and enjoy what's good. But it turned out to be futile. And I said of laughter, somebody say laughter, it is madness. So what he's saying is he turned to Netflix specials. Right? You get that? You see that connection? That's what he did. He turned to things that were going to make him laugh on a regular basis. Can I be honest with you? Can I be transparent and you won't judge me? Some of y'all are judgy. I'm going to say it anyway, okay? When the pandemic hit... The first, I, I, was, I was all worried and apprehensive and all that. And so I was like, yo, I just need an escape. And so I started watching Joe Exotic on Netflix. <laughs> Let me just tell you, I, do, anybody remember what show that was? No, none of you. Okay, cool. We're just going to skip through this illustration then. Skip through it. I just remember yelling in the house, yelling, Carol Baskins. <laughs> My wife was sick of me. I don't know if I should tell this joke, but I'm going to tell it anyway. I told him in the first service. So I, um, I remember watching the first two episodes and being like, this is not, I, I don't like this. Because this show does not represent the melanating of America. Where are the ethnic minorities in this show? About two episodes in, I said to myself, well, I'm glad we sat this one out. I'm glad. Because this is a debacle. This is a debacle. Anyway... What Solomon is saying 
is that that's what he just gave himself to. He gave himself over to laughter, and he said it was madness. Here's why. Because laughing and crude joking, was he was trying to use it as a medicine to anesthetize the pain that he was experiencing in life. And then once it wore off, he was right back in the same place. Now, listen, I'm not saying go home and, and deactivate your Netflix accounts. Well, I am saying, well, I'm saying, I am saying that if you're using somebody else's password, Netflix is coming for you. I just want you to know Netflix is coming for you. They're not playing your shenanigans anymore. You can't, you can't use your auntie's password anymore. They're coming for you. Anyway, let me go on. But I'm just saying, I'm not saying don't use Netflix services or streaming services, but I am giving you a caution. Because many of us are creating environments in our home where we're physically present, but we're emotionally absent. Because we're binge watching The Office. We're binge watching Power and the 3,872 spinoffs that they have. God knows, so many spinoffs. You can't even keep up with the characters anymore. And what all this media is doing is it's creating emotional distance between us and the problem that we're experiencing. And my fear is this, that we can become too absorbed with the characters on the screen that we're overlooking the people in our house or the emotions that we experience on a regular basis. And in other words, we're treating these Netflix specials at times like they're our counselor instead of running to Jesus. Instead of us talking to the counselor, they're talking back to us and it's giving us an opportunity to have some space from what we're feeling. Does that make sense? And so he goes on. In verse 3, so not only is he, is he experiencing a bunch of stuff, but he's doing this in verse 3. He says this. He says, I explored with my mind the pull of wine. This is his third vice, the one that many of us run to. He's like, yo, I've already got the comedy club in my house. I might as well have some alcohol. Now, here, here's what you have to understand about alcohol. Here's what you got to understand. You have to have a biblical view of alcohol. Biblical view. Right? In one instance, alcohol is viewed in Psalm 104, 14 and 15 as a blessing from God. It's a blessing from God. It can be used within specific boundaries in order to elicit joy. That's what it can do. It can also be used positively in celebrations. But some of us are doing what I would like to call overconsumption. Intoxication is the problem. We're overconsuming the spirits. We're treating alcohol like it's our aspirin. So when we have a painful day, the first thing we do, we do is run to a wine cooler. When we have a hard time at work, we run to the wine. When we have a difficult day throughout our day, we're thinking about when we're going to drink, get our next drink. We reward ourselves on good days and we console ourselves on bad days. What, what I'm saying is that some of us need to re-examine our relationship with alcohol. Because you're spending too much money at that happy hour. Spending way too much time, right? Like why, let me ask you, why do you consume alcohol? Is it because you're trying to manage the stress of your relationship? Is it because you're dealing with insomnia? If you're dealing with insomnia and you drink alcohol, it's just going to make it worse because you can't get into your REM sleep. And that's when you're in the deepest part of your sleep getting, like you can't get into it. So like it's not helping you the way that you think that it is. Former, former President George W. Bush spoke out publicly about his alcohol use. In his memoir, Decision Points, he said he was 40 years old. He woke up after a hard night of drinking, and he was ashamed of himself. And he said at that point, he realized that he needed to stop drinking alcohol. Here's why. Because it became too important. 
And my fear is that for some of us, alcohol is just becoming too important in our lives. We're thinking about it too much. We're always thinking about going out the happy hour and we're thinking about drinking too much. It's become too important. Let me just tell you, you can experience healing from alcohol addiction, but you have to be able to confess that it's happening. Because in Christianity, we would describe addiction in in a lot of ways as idolatry. We're believing that that thing that we're craving or that we're desiring is going to bring us joy and satisfaction and fulfillment in a way that only God can. And on top of that, some of y'all know that you make some of the worst decisions in the world when you drink alcohol. You end up responding to text messages that you should not have. Making calls that you should not have. It's almost like your body has a, its own desires and you, you just check off your mind and do whatever your body tells you. Do you really need another intoxicant? Y'all weren't going to talk to me on that point. All I'm saying is your alcohol consumption, when you're overdoing it, is hindering your judgment. And it's going to cause you to make some decisions when you overconsume that you wish you hadn't before you did it. Does that make sense? So he goes on here. He says, I, he, so he goes on, verse four. He said, I can see what, what was good for people under the sun during a few days of our life. I increased my achievements, verse four. And he says, I built houses. Somebody say houses. I don't know about you, but uh, I watched a lot of, uh, what was it called? MTV Cribs when I was younger. Anybody watch MTV Cribs? Am I dating myself? Not too bad? All right, all right, because sometimes I wonder the relevancy of these jokes, but I'm going to go with it anyway. And so I remember watching MTV Cribs, and I remember, uh, I was like, man, these houses are amazing. Like, man, they're beautiful. I remember watching Lil Wayne and Birdman's episode, and I I was like, hmm, that's suspicious. Why do they have a hot tub in the middle of their living room? Me being naive, I was like, I'm sure this is for no nefarious reason at all. I remember, uh, um, <laughs> I remember when, a- when we saw Akon's house. I was like, man, my, this house is nice. Uh, why does he need a gas station? I'm sure that there's a lot of regulatory issues with this. And then what I later found out is a lot of those homes were rented. So these folks were trying to portray an image of who they were that they really weren't. But let me just tell you, if they recorded an episode of Cribs with King Solomon, he wouldn't have had to rent a house. Because he spent a decade building his house. A decade. It was bigger than Drake's mansion. It was so big that he can do a catering. He could cater up to 10,000 people at a time. Some of y'all are like, I can't wait till I remodel my home. I'm going to get that movie room. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. I'm going to get my basement redone. I want to turn, put a room down here. Who cares if I had to egress? I'm just going to put a base room down here and just call it a room. Right? We're just, we're just waiting on it. Solomon's like, yeah, that's cute. I have a treasury in my house. I've got a bank in my house. On top of that, I've got ivory tower. I've got an, I've got an ivory judgment throne or judgment hall in my house. On top of that, I want you to see in verse 4 that it, doesn't, it just doesn't say that he built a house. He said he has multiple houses. He's got so much property, like his rooms have rooms. It's crazy what this man has done. Now, some of you are like, well, Pastor, how does this relate to me? Well, here's the thing. You may not have the palatial estate that Solomon has, but some of us spend so much time remodeling our homes, we should just get sponsored by Home Depot. You might as well become an amateur contractor. 
Let's go ahead and incorporate your business. As much, like that's what we do. We do project after project. We're like, oh, I just got my kitchen done. Now it's time to do the living room. Oh, now it's time to do the other bedroom. Oh, don't you see we got to do this bathroom? Because look, the vanity is just not right. Right? What, we, what we're doing is a small microcosm of what many of us are doing in our lives. We're trying to make our lives as comfortable as possible. That's right. Many of us are spending all of our effort, all of our energy, all of our time and our resources trying to make our lives comfortable. And when you're doing that, you're not focused on making an eternal impact. Like I know, like I know we want our houses comfortable. Like, and, and listen, I like nice stuff. I want to lay in a, a nice bed with high thread count sheets, right? I want to wake up with heated floors in the bathroom. But in some way, we have sacrificed so much for that that we forget that that is not the ultimate goal of our life, is to, is to serve Jesus and live for him forever. That's the goal, friends. And listen, let me just say, like, I know that you want comfort and all that, but that's overrated. That's overrated. It leads to self-absorption and boredom. What have you ever accomplished being in the comfort zone? Many of the things that God wants to do with you are going to cause you to have to get out of the comfort zone, do that thing that you are uncomfortable with, meet people that you're uncomfortable with, do things that don't make you feel good in order for you to grow into what he has for you. Are y'all hearing me? You care too much about your comfort. And it leads you to live a life of self-absorption, not one of purpose for meeting people for the glory of God. And so not only did he spend time on his houses, look what he does, verse five. Let me find it. He said, I made gardens and parks. Gardens and parks. We had some flowers pop out at our house the other day. And I was like, man, look at those flowers. And then I drove by them two days later and I was like, why are they wilted and dead? And I realized that I hadn't put any water on them. And so, you know, I was like, well, well I might as well go put some water on them now. And I could just hear, the, if the flowers could talk, they'd be like, yeah, thanks. Good job, boss. Way to get out here on time. You know, we're all wilted. Like, I don't have a green thumb, but Solomon definitely had one. That's why I think he really studied horticulture. Like, he studied all the gardening stuff. He said, I made gardens, and I planted every kind of fruit tree. You know he lives in the arid desert, right? Like, how in the world do you get peaches in the arid desert? How do you get mangoes in the arid desert? Let me know. How you grow lemons there? That's what he's saying. Like, he's got a green thumb. He's planted gardens and vineyards and trees and parks. He's turned the, the Middle East into a national park. Do you know the level of irrigation and ingenuity that you have to have in order to pull something off like that? He did it, right? He's like, and some of us, you're like, well, what does it have to do with me? Well, some of us are gardeners in here. We spend too much time outside gardening. Some of y'all burn your grass too much. You burn your grass because you want it to pop up and be beautiful. And that's all good. But here's what I want you to know he's doing. If you, what commentators say he's doing is he's trying to recreate the Garden of Eden. Do you know what the Garden of Eden was? The Garden of Eden was, was the place where heaven and earth met. So it was the throne room or the judgment room or the dwelling of God on earth. That's why he could walk through the garden in the cool of the day because he made that his abode in his home. What's the principle? Here's the principle. Too many of us are spending time trying to create our heaven on earth. We're trying to create our Eden right now. And listen, that is a futile attempt because in order for you to create your Eden right now, you have to overlook so much brokenness and volatility that's going on in the world and in our own lives. 
Let me just say, and it bleeds a little bit into the, next, the, the last point, but let me just tell you, it's worth mentioning that it is a futile attempt and Solomon is saying, I've already done it, you don't need to try it. Then he goes on, verse seven, this is what he says. He says, I own livestock and herds, no, no, not that one. He says, I acquired male and female slaves and had slaves that was born into my house. Now, now get this. Given the scope of this massive project that he was trying to accomplish, he needed to have a workforce, right? Needed a workforce. And so we find out in 2 Chronicles that they did a census of all the people that lived in Israel, and there were 153,000 people that were foreigners in that land. And many of them were in forced labor, right? So in order for Solomon to accomplish what he accomplished, it came at the expense of vulnerable people. Does that make sense? So in other words, some of y'all might have questions about slavery. In the Bible, slavery is not referred to as chattel slavery based upon your race. Some people would sell themselves into slavery as a means of paying off a debt. They had guidelines and rules. And if Paul abolished slavery in the book of Jude or in the book of, um, I forgot the name of the book, um, with, with one support, what's the name of the book? Ah, sorry. Anyway, if Paul had abolished slavery, what would have happened is it would have disrupted the whole economic system. Because this was a means of how people paid off debts. There was rules. You couldn't beat them. It was not long-term or lifetime, and it wasn't based upon your race. Does that make sense? So some of the folks, I'm not saying that all of them were forced into labor, but many of them were during that time. So what does that mean? It means that Paul spent, or it means that Solomon spent a big bulk of his time putting people to work against their will. And in order for you to do that, you know what you have a problem with? Power. Power. You have to be addicted to power and overlook the concerns of other people. And that's exactly what he did in his verse. Now, some of y'all are like, well, I don't have a palatial estate just like him. I don't have that. I don't, I don't have a palatial estate. I'm not doing that. But here's the thing. Many of us do have an addiction to power. We love being in charge. We love being in command. We love do- making choices and doing things. Like, that is what many of us do. And he's letting us know in this verse, like, listen, I know you love being in charge, but that's going to cause you a problem long term. That's going to cause you an issue long term. You're manipulating people and getting them to bend at your will and overstepping boundaries, and that is an issue. Do y'all hear me, church? He's into power. And here's the last one. He's into pornography. Look what he says. Look what he says, verse 8. He says, and I gathered male and female singers. I'll tell you about that in a second. And many concubines. Somebody say concubines. Listen to how he describes them. As the delight of men. Think about how sexist and how much he's reducing women here, right? Now, now he's got, think about what he has here. He's already got the drinks. He became a mixologist. He's got a fully stocked bar. He's already got Dave Chappelle and all these, and Chris Rock and many of these other comedians coming into his home and they're already performing their best stuff. So he's got, he's got everything. He's got the house. He's got the drinks. So now all he needs is the women. So he decides, like, yo, how am I going to find He gets on IG, he searches specific hashtags, and he just starts following, DMing, and flying women out to his situation. Don't act like y'all don't know what I'm talking about. Y'all outside. Stop playing. He just starts swiping. Swiping on Tinder. He's just on there, he's just swiping, trying to find a match and all that. And his story, so this dude really had an addiction to sex is what he had. He really had an addiction. He has 700 wives and 300 concubines 
That's a lot of anniversaries to remember. And my kids are here, but I'm going to still say it. That's a lot of sex to be had. He must have been sore all the time. Goodness. Goodness. It's just, it's just overboard. Like he had them there. He, he treated women in a way as though they were there to perform and to fulfill his, ex, his, his every sexual, sexual gratification. Now, some of us, after hearing all this, we'll say, yo, I'm pointing the finger at you, Solomon. You are wrong. And you, might, you would be right. But I think we often overlook the depravity in our own hearts. We overlook the depravity in our own hearts. Because you and I are nothing more than little Solomons. Solomon, we had, even though his house probably had more square footage, we had better houses than Solomon. Better houses than him. You got lights and electricity. You have plumbing. You have, you have the ability to, you have sewer, sewer lines running through your house. You had better furniture than Solomon. For God's sake, we have air conditioner. Whether it's the little window bangers that y'all played through the wintertime because you're addicted to the noise at this point, or whether it's the HVAC system that blows through the house, it doesn't matter. We have better stuff than Solomon. You remember how I said that he had a variety of singers in his home? We can listen to more music than he has. We can listen to a variety of genres. We can go to the grocery store and eat any fruit practically in any season that we want. Like, we have so much more than Solomon. Now, some of y'all are saying, well, I ain't married to 700 dudes. I wouldn't want to. And uh, I don't have that many concubines, but here's the thing. You may not have a physical harem like Solomon, but many of us have a digital harem like Solomon. When we're feeling some type of way, we know how to search key categories to find what we desire at that time. Are y'all going to talk to me tonight? We know how to get on certain websites and then clear our search history so nobody knows that we're on there. We put privacy screens on our phones, on our iPads, on our tablets because we don't want people to know what we've been searching. Solomon was doing every little kinky, nasty little thing he could think of. And some of us are just like Solomon going in the same vein. Paul says it's shameful to even mention what some of them do in private. And so you're like, well, let me just tell you, though. Sex was God's idea. Sex is God's idea. God wants you to enjoy sex in the context of a loving relationship. That's what he wants. He doesn't want you to do sim simulated sex with pornography. He doesn't want you, my children are here, but he doesn't want you engrossing in uh, these type of activities by yourself. Y'all get the, the hint there. That was, you know? And the problem is, is that many of us reduce sex to a bunch of don'ts. Oh, don't view porn. Don't um, stimulate yourself. Don't make out. Those things are all true, but here's what I want to let you know. The Bible doesn't start with a prohibition about sex. God creates Adam and Eve in the garden, and the first thing he says to them is, be fruitful and multiply. Jesus is like, I've created your unique body parts and wired you the way you are for pleasure. And I want you to go, and I want you to increase, and I want you to do this so much that you fill the earth with little babies. So when it comes to sex, 
This is something that God preordained, but we use this good gift and we take it out of context. God wants us to do it in, with procreation, with comfort, and he, he, we use it for procreation, comfort, unity, and sometime, and a lot of time, recreation. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Like, but pornography is not real sex. It's simulated sex with cameras and lights and all that. And you know what it will do? It will desensitize you. It will desensitize you. Because when you finally do get married, you will prefer the images on the screen more than you'll prefer your spouse. And you'll begin to see them as a collection of body parts instead of a whole person that God created and your job is to fulfill their longing. On top of that, it will prevent you from being able to satisfy your spouse because you are training yourself, if you will, by watching these things online to pleasure yourself instead of, be, instead of getting married and help pleasuring your spouse. Are y'all hearing me today? Are we talking real enough? Babies in the room. I don't want any emails. Send them to Pastor Jacob. Jacob Julian. AccelerateChurch.tv. Just go ahead and send it to him. He'll come to me like, Pastor Ern, oof, that statement about, what was that thing you said? I was like, I don't remember. It's in the past. Forgetting those things that were behind me. I press for the higher call in Jesus Christ. Just throw that over the verse. But, I, but I'm, what I'm saying, I'm, I'm, we're laughing here. But here's, the, here's Solomon's conclusion of the matter. He's like, I've got parks and I've got, I've got a bunch of recreation. I've got singers. I've, I've got all this. And he's saying, and in all of this left me empty. It's not that he didn't enjoy it. It was just like he got a sugar rush of pleasure and then he crashed. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I got a pleasure rush in that instant. I was happy. And then it crashed because it's not meant to bring lasting satisfaction. I, I like how Jim Carrey says it. He says, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that, the, that it's not the answer. Yeah, yeah. But the question is, why isn't the, it the answer? I'll tell you. Are you ready for it? What's the most predominant word in this passage that we read so far? I. Me. I. I made, I bought, I became, I surpassed. He uses the word I 40 times. This is a self-centered reflection. And this is what many of us start at or how many of us start when we think about pleasure and joy. We start with us. But every study, whether secular or religious, reveals that lasting joy is never found in what you get from the world, but it's found in what you give to the world by walking in your purpose and establishing loving relationships you can share with others. Here's it, like, like no one was ever comforted on their deathbed saying, whew, I know I'm about to die, but uh, we really rode the Mercedes, didn't we? <laughs> Shout out to that trip to the Caribbean. You remember we went to that trip to the Caribbean? No. Nobody's going to say that. I'm not going to say, oh, man, we really, we really did it. They're not going to, you know why? They're going to be comforted by the robust relationships of people by the bedside. And the good company and the laughs that they shared with other people. Like, like, frankly, if you make your life, get this, if you make your life about your needs, your wants, your desires, and all that, you know what it's going to lead to? A life of emptiness. A life of emptiness. And on top of that, you'll be alone. Because God did not create you to live life finitely. He created and put eternity in our hearts so that we can have the desire to live forever. 
right? That's why we have that desire. And so on one hand, you have the beauty in the world. You have things like friendship and food and wine and sex, and they're all beautiful. But if you base your identity on them, it's going to leave you frustrated and sad. But here's the thing. Your frustration with earthly things should lead you back to God because there is nothing under the sun that can satisfy you like him. It's not to say that you're going to have the greatest life ever, but one thing about God is he is an anchor during hard times because you ultimately know that your life is in his hand. And then on top of that, he sent his son Jesus to deal with the biggest issue that you and I have, which is our sin, which is the thing that creates a chasm between he and I. So Jesus satisfies that on the cross and through the resurrection. He takes the horrors of the cross so that you and I can have unending and lasting joy with him. He endures the wrath, endures the shame and the punishment so that you and I don't have to be shackled to futile, self-indulgent lives. If you're looking for joy today as the cure for your cynicism or your hiddenism, it's not found in pessimistic ideas or pleasures beyond. It's found in Christ. Save your time. Same your effort and energy. And then here's what happens. When you find your identity and your satisfaction in Jesus, not only is your eternity settled, which we all need, amen, somebody. Not only is your eternity settled, but you can take joy and have solace that he then redeems those things and uses them as a means for us to enjoy. So he's like, yes, enjoy that relationship. Enjoy that sex in the confines of your marriage. Enjoy going outside and planting gardens and all that. Yeah, enjoy that housing project. Like, enjoy those things, but don't base who you are upon them. Base it on me, and then you'll see that these things are a gift to your life, not a means of you finding joy and satisfaction long term. Are y'all hearing me, church? Find your satisfaction in Jesus. That poor uh, fella, I hope he changed his career. Because he was getting pummeled in that ring. He was getting pummeled. I mean, so many right hooks, uppercuts, and jabs. I would have just had to lay down. Like, you know what, sir? I'm sorry. It's over. Like, I'm done. No more. Like, no, no, I'm sorry. Like, I would have got hit one time, and I would have saw it on my bloody lip, and I'd be like, nah, that's good. I'm good. Like, he could have stopped the fight. We can't stop the fight for joy. But when you accept Jesus, and when you know him, what he helps us do is he helps us learn how to deal with the punches that come. He helps you to be able to deal. When you get a hook of disappointment, you can anchor, anchor yourself in the scriptures. It doesn't shift your identity. When, when you get a, a hook of discouragement, you can say, you know what? This is discouraging, but I'm still a son or daughter of God. He's still got a plan for my life. I'm still wired with purpose and uniquely gifted. All of these things are used as gifts that God gives to us. And so listen, I want to encourage you. If you don't know Jesus today, I want to encourage you to take a step. When you walked in, there was a connect card. Fill out that connect card. Give us as much information as you feel comfortable with, right? And then on the back, there's a, there's a step that corresponds with where you want to go next. Maybe you need to be baptized. Maybe you need to accept Jesus savingly. I want to encourage you to fill that out because when you do, it's going to help us connect with you and get you to the place that Jesus wants you to go. Amen? Why don't you let me pray for you? Jesus, thank you so much that you love us with an unstoppable love. Lord, many of us are in the fight of our lives right now. We're fighting for our lives, Lord. I pray that you would give us strength, hope, and encouragement as we, as we do so. Give us hope. Give us the grit and resilience that we need 
in order to embark and deal with the life that hap- that what happens to us in life. And so, Lord, we love you. We honor you in Jesus' name. And if you agree with that, why don't you say amen? Amen. Do me a favor. Turn.